You are listening to Best Life After Cancer, episode number 54. Welcome to Best Life After Cancer. I'm so glad you're here. This is the podcast where cancer survivors and caregivers can get solutions and support to overcome the life challenges brought by their cancer diagnosis. If you are ready to release your fear, regain your joy, and reduce your risk, you're in the right place. I'm your host, Dr. Deborah Butzbach. Today, we are talking about the science of fear and also something I just learned about but made so much sense why people struggle to change their thoughts after cancer. This is a two-part episode. When I got into this, there was so much that I knew I couldn't fit it all in one episode. So be sure to listen to this part first. But first, I'm going to tell you a little story from when I was a kid. We lived out in the country with a stream about a quarter of a mile behind our house. There were no other kids for miles. So my brother and I hung out a lot, even though he was six years younger than me. At the end of a long winter, there was a day that was perfect, a really warm and beautiful spring day. My brother and I were outside and headed to the stream. We had spent time when things were frozen, making a tree bridge across it. We got down to the stream and onto the log bridge. I was in the middle with him right behind me when I realized there were three snakes coiled up at the end of the logs, laying in the sun, likely just emerging from where they had hibernated in the mud. Another snake was down near the stream under us. My brother was pushing me from behind because I had suddenly stopped. I was so terrified I couldn't even move. I managed to gasp out what was happening and we backed off the logs. I started screaming and running for home. My brother, of course, was freaked out and running behind me, but I thought the swishing in the long grass and weeds was the snakes chasing me. I screamed louder and ran faster. That is when I remember becoming terrified of snakes. Every event involving snakes after that was a pathway faster than the speed of light. I saw a snake and I freaked out. This bypassed thought, straight to a pounding heart, sweating and literally jumping onto whatever I could to get away from the snake, be it furniture or another human. The interactions with snakes as the years passed, man, you would have thought one jumped up and bit me on the cheek, injecting me with the deadliest of poisons. I didn't need a reason to be afraid. I just was. When I was younger and one swam out of the filter in our pool at home, I freaking walked on water to get away as quickly as I could. When my kids were little, three and four at the time, and they caught a garter snake in the backyard, I ran into the house and locked all the doors and left them outside with the snake. I'll pause here to tell you, They thought this was the funniest thing ever. They stood banging on the glass door with the little snake clutched in a chubby, dirty hand, beaming like angels. And when we were snorkeling in Thailand, I saw an unusual eel hunting on the bottom, and I swam along above it, watching its unusual behavior. For some reason, I'm not afraid of eels. Until this eel left the bottom and started up towards me, and all of a sudden I realized it was a poisonous sea snake swimming towards my unprotected stomach. I started screaming into my snorkel and thrashing around like a woman possessed. I swear the snake looked surprised, then worried, 
and then clearly decided that I was more deranged than anything it had experienced, and it swam the other direction to surface somewhere else. There was no rational reason all of these times I was so afraid. I had never been bitten or actually even stepped on a snake, but my brain recognized a snake and sent a huge jolt through my sympathetic nervous system, leading to all of the sensations that go with this, pounding heart, sweating, surge of adrenaline. So let's talk about fear. One of the interesting things about fear is that we are born with only two innate fears, the fear of falling and the fear of loud sounds. A 1960s study evaluated depth perception among six to 14-month-old infants and young animals. Researchers placed the subjects on a platform that had plexiglass just beyond its edge to see how many of the subjects would actually step over the visual cliff. Most of the subjects, both children and animals, didn't go over and step out onto the plexiglass. The fear of falling is an instinct necessary for the survival of many species. The second is loud sounds. When you hear a loud sound, you will most likely react involuntarily. This is called the acoustic startle reflex. If a sound is loud enough, you will likely respond by ducking your head. What this means is that most of our fear is learned. Snakes, spiders, the dark, these are called natural fears, developed at a young age, influenced by our environment and culture. A young child isn't automatically scared of spiders, but builds on cues from his parents. You get evidence from your parents and your environment that you need to be scared of these things. It is interesting to point out though, while the fear itself is learned, humans seem to be predisposed to fearing certain things like spiders and snakes because of evolution. Back in our ancestral age, young children learned not to pick up snakes and spiders because they could be venomous. Fear's essential role in survival helps to explain why it sometimes seems a little trigger happy. In other words, it makes sense to be a little jumpy if you're an animal in a hostile environment. It's better to run and hide when your shadow catches you by surprise than to presume that a shadow is safe only to be eaten by a bear five seconds later. As we get older, fears are developed because of association. Norholm, a neuroscientist, compares it to a soldier who survives an encounter with a bomb that was hidden in a shopping bag. If that soldier is redeployed and sees another shopping bag, he has a fight-or-flight response. Here, an association has been made between the cue and the fear outcome. So let me take a moment to explain how our brains work. The brains of all animals respond to danger. Fear is a chain reaction in the brain that happens when you encounter a potentially harmful stimulus. For example, if you see a snake while hiking, there are two roadways for your brain, says Norholm, the neuroscientist. First is the instinctive pathway that represents your brain's sensory systems. What you see, smell, and hear signals to the brain that there is something to fear. This is the low road. A small area of the brain called the amygdala sends a distress signal to the hypothalamus. This part of the brain is the control center and it communicates with the rest of the body by way of the autonomic nervous system. The connection between the hypothalamus and the body has two parts, the sympathetic nervous system, which is the gas pedal ramping everything up, 
and the parasympathetic nervous system, which is like the brake, slowing everything down. It also activates the pituitary gland, which is where the nervous system meets the endocrine or hormone system, which we will talk about more in a few minutes. During fear, the hypothalamus sends impulses to many parts of the body to trigger a fight or flight response. This signaling prompts many body systems to undergo changes to give your body a burst of energy needed to defend yourself or escape a potentially harmful situation. Fight or flight responses are unlearned reactions that humans and many other animals automatically make to increase their chances for survival in a potentially dangerous situation. Organisms that feared the right things and made a fight or flight response were more likely to survive and pass on their genes to their offspring. During the fight or flight response, many body systems undergo changes to give your body a burst of energy and strength needed to defend yourself or to run away from a dangerous situation. Both fight and flight require food and oxygen to provide the energy for vigorous muscle activity. What happens in the body when this system activates? Breathing and heart rate increase, peripheral blood vessels in the skin, for instance, constrict, central blood vessels around vital organs dilate to flood them with oxygen and nutrients, and muscles are pumped with blood ready to react. Muscles, including those at the base of each hair, become tighter, causing the hairs to stand up, goosebumps in humans. When a human's hair stands on end, it doesn't make much of a difference in our appearance, but for furry animals, it makes them seem larger and more formidable. The sympathetic nervous system also inhibits or shuts down parts of the body that are not immediately essential for fighting or running, such as the digestive system, the immune system, the urinary system, and the reproductive system. At the same time, our hormones of fear kick in. The other way to get messages to many different parts of the body is through hormones secreted by the endocrine system. The pituitary gland stimulates the adrenal gland. This is an endocrine gland located near the kidneys that produces two fear hormones, adrenaline and cortisol. These hormones are carried in the bloodstream to all parts of your body. The effect of adrenaline, also called epinephrine, is similar to the effect of the sympathetic nervous system. These hormones can boost activity in the heart and lungs, reduce the activity in the stomach and intestines, which explains the feeling of butterflies in the stomach, inhibits the production of tears and salivation, which explains the dry mouth that comes with a fright, dilates the pupils, and produces tunnel vision and reduces hearing. Fear hormones result in a longer-lasting and more widespread fight-or-flight response than the effects of the sympathetic nervous system. Cortisol, the second hormone released, increases blood sugar level by converting stored glycogen and fats into glucose and suppresses the immune response. Fear hormones explain why you may feel the fight-or-flight response even after you realize there really is no danger. Normally, almost simultaneously with the low road path, there's a high road that goes through the higher cortical center in your brain. The high road says, I've seen this kind of snake before and I don't have to worry. In this way, a reasoning response can override the low road. This involves the hippocampus, a brain region dedicated to memory storage to help control the fear response. Along with the prefrontal cortex, part of the brain involved in high-level decision-making 
They help us understand whether our fear response is real or justified, or whether we might have overreacted somewhat. If the hippocampus and prefrontal cortex decide that the fear response is exaggerated, they can dial it back and dampen the amygdala's activity. This partly explains why people enjoy watching scary movies. Their sensible thinking brain can overpower the primal parts of the brain's automated fear response. We will talk about this a bit more in the second episode of the fear series. Sometimes, though, our fears evolve into a phobia that shortcuts the high road. Over the years, I attributed a thought to this process. I hate snakes. But here is the thing. I talk about changing thoughts, but the truth is, when we have a trauma response to something, we skip the thought and go straight to those feelings of terror in our bodies. I could think all I wanted that snakes are part of the ecosystem, that they are not slimy, that they are more afraid of me than I am of them. But none of that matters if we bypass the thought and go directly to the fight or flight response. I had known this for years, but I was listening to an awesome class by Simone Sewell, and she pointed out that this trauma response may drive how we respond to things. I had a light bulb moment. Oh, So some of my people can't stop this loop because they are bypassing the thoughts and going straight to a fear response. So when you go for a test and they tell you after the doctor wants to see you, if you feel a sensation like what you felt when you were first diagnosed and your brain goes straight to terror that the cancer is back, when you hear that someone famous died from the cancer you have, you may be skipping the thought and going straight to a gut-wrenching fear. In psychiatry, phobias are classified as an anxiety disorder. They are often an irrational and overactive fear of something that may not cause harm. They can attach to pretty much anything and significantly impact people's lives. There is no hard and fast reason why a phobia will develop. Both genes and the environment can be involved. Sometimes the origin can be relatively easy to understand. Someone who witnesses someone falling off a bridge may later develop a phobia of bridges. In general, though, a phobia's origins are tricky to unravel. After all, most people who witness someone falling off a bridge do not develop a phobia of bridges. So there is more to it than simple experience. While not completely understood, scientists have uncovered some of the brain pathways that trigger phobias. Given our understanding of the amygdala's involvement in the fear response, it is unsurprising that phobias are linked to heightened activity in this region of the brain. One study discovered that there was a disconnect between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex, which normally helps an individual override or minimize the fear response. Aside from the fear felt when someone with a phobia meets their nemesis, these individuals are also in a heightened state of arousal. They always expect to see their trigger, even in situations where it is not particularly likely to appear. Another study explored this phenomenon in people with arachnophobia, or fear of spiders. It found that if scientists told these individuals that they might encounter a spider, activity in their brains differed from control participants without a phobia. Activity in parts of the upper brain including the lateral prefrontal cortex, precuneus, and visual cortex was comparatively lower. These brain regions are key for regulation of emotions. They help keep us level-headed. A reduction in their activity 
suggests a reduced ability to keep a lid on fearful emotions. Often, an individual with a phobia will be well aware that their response to the object that they fear is irrational. The weaker activity in these brain areas helps to explain why this might be. The parts of the brain responsible for keeping a cool head and assessing the situation are muted, thereby allowing more emotional regions to play their hand. This, I think, is one possible reason why some people may have such challenges changing their thoughts. When you have this response, first, you need to take time to calm your body. The quickest, easiest, and honestly most effective is pausing and taking three deep, calming breaths with your eyes closed, in through the nose, out through the mouth. That will start to activate the parasympathetic nervous system that puts the brakes on the instinctual fear response. Other things that work are a short pause to meditate, rubbing or patting your arms, or a technique called tapping. Once you have calmed your instinctual response, you will be more able to get to the higher brain functions. I have realized that with a snake, I can't stop the huge jump and racing heart, but I can pause in the moment take a breath, and not run and scream, unless there is a dear child chasing me with said snake, which happens occasionally, with them laughing maniacally. Okay, this is where we're going to stop for today. I will talk more about fear next week, and we will continue this fascinating journey into our complex human brains. I hope you have a great week, and I'll talk with you soon. Thanks for listening to Best Life After Cancer. Did you know you can get more information on my website, bestlifeaftercancer.com? There is also a Facebook page, Best Life After Cancer MD, where there is a group just for survivors. Here you are able to interact with me, ask questions, and get more help. I'd love to see you there. Have a great week, and I'll speak with you soon.